following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Have you uh, noticed, as we live on planet Earth, that not everything works out the way you plan? Anybody notice that? Take the lawyer who is trying to discredit the policeman on the witness stand. The lawyer asked, who gave you the description of the fleeing client uh, from this particular scene? The officer said, well, my fellow officer. And the lawyer asked him, well, do you trust him? And the officer said, well, yes, with my life. And he goes, oh, with your life. Well, tell me, officer, do you have room at uh, the police station where you change clothes and a place where you put all your personal belongings? And the officer said, yes. He said, do you lock, you know, that particular locker with a lock that only has your combination? The officer said, yes. Then tell me why, officer, if you trust your fellow officers with your life, you find it necessary to lock your locker in a room you share with these other officers. And the officer answered, well, you see, sir, we share the building with the court complex, and sometimes lawyers are known to walk through that particular building. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> so, how about the two pastors were applying for the same job, Luke and John, and both had the same qualifications. Both were asked to take a test by the search committee. Upon completion of the test, they both missed only one question, and the search committee chairman then went to Luke and said, thank you for your interest, but we've decided to give John the job. And Luke said, well, why would you do that? We both got nine questions correct. Well, the search committee chairman said, well, we're not gauging it on the basis of the correct answers, but the question that you got wrong. And, and Luke asked, well, how, how would one incorrect answer be better than another? And the chairman said simply, John put down on question number five, I don't know, and you put down, neither do I. <laughs> Didn't work out too well. Well, interesting thing, there are processes that are part of the church family that are to work well. They don't always work well, and sometimes they don't work very well at all, but they're actually talked about in the Bible as things that we need to pursue. And we're in the midst of a series talking about what a weird church, and the reason for that is because the, the contemporary church has moved so far away from Scripture that when you actually follow the Word of God, you look weird. And last week was a great reminder of that, that uh, morality-wise, we are uniquely weird to our particular culture, and interesting enough, even the way we do what we do, the processes that we're trying to have work out for the glory of God and for our good, actually also look a little strange to the watching world. But these practices must be done in a way that is according to the owner's manual, the Bible, and therefore, uh, would you agree that everything in the church is not always done the way the Bible says and also is done correctly? I mean, should we baptize five-year-olds? Are we to discipline people over preferences? Is the local church to make singing performance? Is evangelism only proclaiming Christ on the streets with a megaphone? Is membership optional? Well then, how do we perform these practices in a way that truly pleases Christ, that really honors Him. Today, we're going to look at some of those practices of a biblical church, why we operate the way we do, 
And some of these are not preferences, these are principles. These are not options, these are commands that have to be done and pursued. These are procedures that every biblical church is to be a part of. Now, I'm not describing programs here, but actually describing biblical principles, biblical commands in practice. Not so that we become the trendy church, but we become the truth-driven church, that we're doing things the way the Lord would have us do it. Now, most often, most people, as they come to churches, they don't even think about these things. They just happen in the church, and, and then sometimes they'll say, well, why do we do it this way? Why do we do it this way? Most of the time, we don't think about what we do at all. It's, it's like driving on the road, right? A lot of times, you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just automatically driving. We don't think about other drivers until the guy who got his license at the dollar store you know, does something loopy. He cuts you off. He, he passes you at warp nine. You know, he's playing that game in front of you. What's my lane? That kind of thing. And then you say, that's not right. What's wrong with that guy? And then, of course, because you're so godly, you instantly start praying for them, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what I thought. The church is to be the same. We're to be those who need to know what God expects to us as we're driving through this life what does he want his bride to be and his bride to do? Now, no, we're not going to cover all the practices that Christ put in place for his bride, but today we're going to answer why we do what we do with six different practices found in five different points in your outline. So hopefully you'll track along with us, grab that outline, and again, we're wrapping up what is a weird church. We've looked at our doctrine, week one, our priorities, week two, our relationships, week three. Last week, our morals that will make us hopefully light and salt in our generation. And now, week five, our church practices, hoping that we're functioning or driving the way that our Lord wants us to do that. So what are some of them? Let's track with me if you would. The first one is familiar to all of you, and that would be point number one in your outline, the church practices baptism and communion, right? I do. Now, May and June are graduation months. You know, we watched all the graduations. Some of you went to them. We snickered at what caps and gowns make regular people look like. Uh, we listened to speeches that were fun and not so fun. And we clapped for students. And then we go home wondering what a strange kind of rite of passage graduations are. Interesting enough, human beings are kind of eccentric. Uh, we have this unusual propensity for markers and milestones out of our lives. I mean, birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, retirement parties, even war memorials, we love to mark events in our lives. Your cat does not care about its anniversary for arriving at your home. In fact, your cat really doesn't care about anything, okay? But just forget your wedding anniversary once, and you'll find out how important markers are. Anybody with me on this? You're, you know, neglect your car's birthday, no big deal, but forget your kid's birthday and you're going to see some reaction. Two practices that Christians are a part of, rite of passages. One is the single initiatory rite called baptism, and the other is an ongoing, regularly celebrated rite called communion. And you know that whatever God designed, the enemy distorts, Right? And you know whatever is crucial for Christians, it is corrupted by the enemy. And these beginning rites that we practice, ordinances, have been distorted. They have been corrupted over 2,000 years. 
So let's look at them and see what they say in the Scripture. Look at first in your outline, the first step of obedience, baptism. The enemy corrupted baptism by making it a requirement for salvation. Wrong. Uh, By teaching that infants should be baptized as a sign of God's promise. Wrong. By teaching that any mode of baptism is okay. Wrong. And that the enemy corrupted baptism, making it optional for Christians. Wrong. The Greek word baptize is baptizo. And it means immersion. Even those who didn't practice baptism, like Luther and Calvin, in the same way that we do, would translate this word as meaning immersion. That's what it means. It's an outward sign of an inward transformation, expressing a heart that seeks to identify with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and to follow Christ as the first step of obedience, and your identity with an immersion into the body of Christ, the church. It's you saying, I belong to Jesus, and I belong to these people, and I'm going to follow what He now teaches, and not what anybody else teaches. I'm saying, I'm His. I belong to Him. I'm immersed in Christ, and immersed in His body. And we do that by getting into water, and being totally buried and immersed in water, identifying with His death, and we come out of that water, identifying with His, what? Resurrection. And we're saying, I am now belonging to Christ, and I believe in His death, burial, resurrection. And that's exactly what the Bible says in Matthew 28, 19. Take a look at it. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And what are we supposed to do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, we see that It's not just a spiritual baptism that the New Testament talks about. Now, we are spirit baptized. We are immersed by the Spirit of God and uniquely supernaturally put into the body of Christ. But there is a physical practice that the early church did when it came to baptism. And you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Take a look at it. Paul adds, I thank God that I baptize none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Now I said, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. And he's talking about certain people in Corinth were going, well, I was baptized by Paul, and I was baptized by Robert Dodson. So I mean, hey, you know, I really got it together. And they were kind of dividing up even over their baptism. This is commanded by Christ. It is taught in the New Testament. And it is practiced by the New Testament church and became the first ordinance of the church and the first sign of our identification with Christ and really it's proper to call it the first step of obedience first step of obedience ff bruce writes the idea of an unbaptized christian is simply not entertained in the new testament i would agree it's not a personal choice here friends it is a command of god spurgeon said nothing is more plainly taught in the new testament than that it is the duty of every believer in Christ to be, what? Baptized. And get this, only believers are baptized. The words belief and baptism, if you study them, you'll find that they are inseparably linked in the New Testament. Belief is always assumed to be the root of which baptism is the fruit. So the core is... It's belief, and that's why the church should not baptize children, 
should not baptize anyone who hasn't had enough time in which to manifest a distinct relationship with Christ, distinct from their parents. What does Luke 14 tell us what a Christian is? It's somebody who is willing to hate their father, hate their mother, and uniquely only follow Christ. To give up everything in their life and willing to follow Him no matter what. To actually die to themselves. There's a unique separation of unique, independently following Christ that needs to occur. And that's why we choose, as a church family, to not baptize children. Somewhere, you know, 0 to 15, after that we're seeing them, and again, that's a general phrase, it's not a legalistic phrase, but understand that they desire to obey Christ on their own. They're following Christ, regardless of mom and dad walk away from Christ, they're still going to follow Christ. Because they're independently fleeing sin, pursuing Christ, and basically a child from a Christian home is confessing independently for Jesus Christ. And as that faith is manifested, you and I are to be baptized by immersion, by identifying with Jesus Christ. That is what you're called to do. And by the way, we still have openings for our beach baptism. So if you want to take that step, that's great. You say, Chris, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I'm 50 years old. I'm 80 years old. Never too late to be baptized, friends. Never too late. All right? You can even be a pastor like I was for five years and then be baptized. <laughs> Let's not get into it. All right, so secondly, look at the ongoing expression of obedience, communion. Communion. The Lord's Supper is an external reminder of salvation. The bread reminds you of the broken body of Jesus Christ. The cup reminds you of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. What He did on the cross for our sins, it reminds you of what He did in order to provide salvation for you. He was our substitute. That's what makes Christianity unique. God did this on our behalf. God saves sinners. We don't do it. He does it. He took care of your forever punishment in hell. He did it for you. We remember Christ with communion. In fact, it's so important to the early church that they turned it into a gigantic major event. They made it a major milestone. It was a giant family reunion every time they participated. Along with the bread and the cup in the early church, they enjoyed what they called a love feast together. Now this agape feast was like a modern day potluck. Now I know some of you suspected that potlucks were spiritual. Now here's your evidence, okay? They really are. Members of a church family would gather. They'd bring whatever food or drink they could afford. They were encouraged to share with everybody in the church, no matter how rich or poor they were. Just share it with all. And everyone enjoyed that particular meal together. And after that meal, the most symbolic part of that gathering of the meal uh, was communion. And then after communion and the meal, the believers would linger. They would sing. They would enjoy Uh, basically a time where all barriers were down and and basically all bonds were strengthened. It was genuinely an expression of incredible fellowship and enjoyment with one another. And the Lord began the ordinance in the upper room, you know about that, and practiced it in the early church. In fact, Paul corrected the Corinthians for participating in communion in an unworthy manner. It was so serious that some of the believers in Corinth were actually sick Some of them actually died because they partook in communion in an unworthy manner. They were not doing it the way God designed it. They're doing wrong practices, wrong pursuits here. How'd they do it? They were disunified. They weren't dealing with their difficulties with other people in the body. 
Uh, They were coming drunk to the agape feast. They were not examining their own hearts. They were not remembering the incredible sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. They forgot what this was all about. So Paul corrects believers of 1 Corinthians 11 by highlighting the three major purposes. There are actually eight purposes of communion, but they're highlighting the three major ones in 1 Corinthians 11. And basically, there are no warnings, friends, to non-believers with communion. A lot of exhortations occur about you know, non-believers not participating. Listen, they're already under judgment. That, that wasn't the issue. The warnings about communion are pointedly directed at believers. Are you ready? Let's make it personal. At you. The warnings are for you. And Paul warns born-again Christians to not partake in an unworthy manner. When you individually practice communion with all of us together, you must hear the three things. First, remember our unity. Remember our unity. In verses 17 to 22, it teaches us to make certain there's no broken fellowship. There's no disunity between you and another believer in this church before you partake. Listen, before you partake, you've got to be right with your brothers and sisters or you should not partake. You should wait. Make that right and then partake. Secondly, remember his sacrifice. Verses 23 to 26, Paul makes the main point of communion. Who are we remembering? Answer... Oh, wait, wait, wait. There was three of you. Who are we remembering? Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. What He did for us. Again, it's a symbol, an external symbol of an internal reality. And therefore, in order to to remember that, He gave us these symbols to remember how Christ sacrificed Himself in order to save us. The incredible, incredible loving act of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as a church, we'll practice communion again weekly in a variety of ways. Uh, Keep our hearts focused and not routine as we remember his sacrifice. And number three, you're to remember your heart. What do you mean remember your heart? Verses 28 to 30, God commands you to examine your heart for any unconfessed sin, any unrepentant sin between you and the Lord or even you and someone else, and deal with that before you participate or to not participate until you can make that correct. Though it's not a doctrine, the evidence of the New Testament is that communion was practiced regularly, if not weekly, by the early church. And we love it as a church family because it's an ongoing physical reminder of what Christ did for us and because our hearts are prone to wander. By the way, is your heart prone to wander? Sure it is. Uh, is it, it, it's really, you know, our hearts not only prone to wander, but sometimes we forget what Christ has done for us, so we're brought back to the foot of the cross and our Lord's costly salvation every single week. The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. And He knows our tendency to forget and our propensity to allow the pace of life to allow our love for the Lord Jesus Christ to wane. So the big tension is this. Are you ready for this? Here's the big tension with communion. God commands you to participate in communion. But in commanding you to participate, you have to do it His way. You have to do it where you examine your heart. You have to remember Christ. You have to make sure you're right with your brothers and sisters. And that's the Lord's love for us, right? He gives us an external symbol to remind us of how desperately we need that. Desperately need we to evaluate that. So, are you? Is your heart right? Are you pursuing Christ in that manner? That's number one. Two practices. Number two in your outline, the church practices church discipline. The church practices church discipline. Don't worry, we're halfway through. So understand, 
Parents, do you remember you stopped your child from doing something very bad? Remember that when you did that? Scratching a car, writing on a wall, stealing from a friend, torturing the cat, uh, lighting an indoor fire, breaking a, a precious item, and all that was Sean Farrell before four years old. So God has a practice in the church family which does the same. It seeks to rescue a believer from those kind of external intentional actions against God. In the law, in Numbers chapter 15, Moses makes a distinction between sin. And he talks about unintentional sin and intentional sin. Uh, He calls the word defiant sin and undefined. You know the difference between those two? Unintentional uh, sin or undefined sin is what, what we wrestle with all the time. And we're wrestling with it. And we're confessing it. And we're dealing with it. It goes on all the time. Defiant sin is when you know what the Bible says. And you basically in your heart said, I don't care what you've said, God. I'm going to do what I want. That's defiant. Are you getting it? There's a big difference between those two. And that's carried over, I believe, in the New Testament with this process called church discipline. As the New Testament unfolds, it describes different approaches to certain kinds of sin. And so when it's unintentional... When, you know, you're talking to somebody on the patio and they blurp out something that, you know, crosses the line and, and all of a sudden you're like, you have a choice there. Are you going to go, we need to go through the steps of church discipline with you, you know, or are you going to go, I love you and we just move on. I used to get phone calls, you know this, uh, on Sunday afternoon of people when I talked to them on the patio and they'd call me up and they'd say, Chris, Chris, I didn't mean to say that. This happened multiple, hundreds of times. I didn't mean to say that. And I'm like, the first thing out of my mouth was, what did you say? I don't remember what you said. Well, I said, blah, 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 blah. And I went, oh, yeah, I, I think I remember that. Well, I, I just get, you know, I, whatever. If I saw that that was a pattern, I'd talk to you. Otherwise, forget it. Listen, I promise you, if you've got an ongoing pattern, I'll address it, but I, don't worry about it. You know, I mean, understand, I'm glad you have a sensitive heart. I'm glad you're confessing it. That's wonderful, but I got no unintentional sin. Are you getting it? We're always dealing with that in our lives. It's when it becomes defiant, divisive, that's when it becomes a more serious issue that we have to address. So when it's, you know, basically unintentional, it says in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Love them, accept them, get over the offenses, forgive them, don't be the victim, remembering how many times you've sinned in the same way and have sinned against others. But if you can't let it go, or if it's intentional and defiant sin, then the New Testament tells you not to cover it, but to confront. What does he say? Take a look at those verses in your outline. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That means before you do that, you tell like 300 people, right? No, he says don't tell anybody. Just go to him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Titus 3, 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. First Corinthians 5.11 I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, a covetous person, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Not to even what? No Taco Bell with them. When it's unintentional, cover the sin. Get over it. If you can. 
If you can't, when it's intentional, then confront. And when you go, you go in humility, you go in love as a fellow sinner. I typically encourage Christians, hey, make it a practice before you ever confront somebody. Tell them about two or three things that you're battling with. Then confront them. Make sure you come in humility. Why? What do you want to do this for? To restore them to fellowship with Christ and to one another. You want to protect the church. When we tolerate sin, uh, ongoing sin, defiant sin, it harms the church. It destroys our witness in the world. How do you do it? You lovingly call them to repent of their sin. To turn from it. To follow Christ in obedience to his word. If they're a Christian, they have the spirit of God. They can do it. And in doing so, you do so with gentleness, making sure that your heart is right. And do so humbly, knowing that you're too a sinner. And who does it? Who's the one that does this? You're saying, well, not me. Wait a minute. There are no Gestapo squads. There's no self-righteous do-what-I-sayers here. People are to lovingly confront. The people who are supposed to confront is, are you ready? You. You. Every single Christian. Now, if you're married, you've got this down. All right? That was supposed to be funny, but it just didn't work. (laughs) But when somebody's hurting themselves, when someone is damaging the church... When someone's ruining their witness with defiant sin, it is initially not the elders, not the pastor's job, not the intern's job. It's the Christian who's aware of this, who covers the sins of others with love or confronts the defiant sinner with the appropriate discipline passage, which is basically addressing that particular sin. If you love someone, you either cover their sin, their unintentional sin, or you confront their intentional sin. Listen, church discipline is the process that Christians use in restoring defiantly sinful believers back to dependent obedience to Christ and to protect the body from defiant sin. How's your driving? Are you involved in this? This is a part of what we do as a church family. This is part of what Christians do. This is not weird, okay? Wait a minute. Some of you go, this is weird. This is not weird. This is normal New Testament Christianity. Normal, everyday Christians. This is why it looks weird is because not because we're teaching anything weird. It's because the church has moved away from this when actually it's a part of who we are. A part of who we are. Number three, the church practices undistracted non-performance praise. Undistracted non-performance praise. I occasionally look around on Sunday mornings. By the way, when I'm preaching, I'm seeing you. So when you're cranking out that big yawn, you know, that where I can see your tonsils, just know that someday I'm going to stop and say, you know, Andy, would you get some sleep, please? Okay, whatever. All right, so understand that didn't happen. But enter. I look around sometimes during worship time, and I shouldn't because I need to be focused on the Lord, but sometimes I do, and I see that there are people that are not singing. Can you believe that? People are not singing. That's shocking to me. You see, what does that mean? It means... A lot of possibilities. Let me give you some. It means they're not saved. It means they're immature. It means they're in sin. It means they're fearful. It means they're proudly self-conscious. Or most likely, they sing so badly, they refuse to punish others around them with their singing. Okay. Is that you? That could be you. Which one of those is you? A biblical church is a singing church. It's part of our process. It's what we do. A church that praises God. The Bible clearly teaches that every Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. And are you ready for this? Um, This is going to be a shocker. If you are filled with the Spirit, you will sing. You will. It just automatically, you will sing. 
say, Chris, where do you get that? From the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Here's the challenge, the command. Be filled with the Spirit. Then what's the fruit of that? What happens when you're filled with the Spirit? When you depend on the Spirit of God? When you're seeking to obey the Word of God by being depending on the Spirit of God? When you're relying on Him and stepping out in obedience? When you're confessing all known sin? When you're seeking to serve Christ in everything and serve one another? Then, as you're filled with the Spirit, verse 19, something's going to happen. You're going to speak to one another. Look at it. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making what? Melody in your heart to the Lord. Now let's pick this phrase apart. When he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, there is either means you're communing with your own heart in song or you're speaking to one another in songs. Most commentators say it's probably both. You're speaking in your own heart, you're speaking to others. It's melodically, it's Colossians 3.16. It is letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. A lot of the, obviously, the songs that we sing are scripture or their application of scripture and therefore the reminding us of scripture. So we're doing that melodically. Now I do sing worship songs in my heart and think about the truth of them all week long. Anybody else with me? Thank you, Pat Levis, for your ministry in our midst. But when it comes to speaking songs to others, not too many people come up to me and go, hey, Chris, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I go, yes, you got that right. Okay, so we do share truth with each other, singing truth, singing biblical poetry, scripture memory makes that possible. But what is it that we speak? Look what he says in verse 19, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, most commentators burp and go on and say they all mean the same thing. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. But they don't. They are very specific. This is music here. And those of you into music, you'll understand this. Psalms has to do with instrumental plucking of strings. Hymns has to do with a poem of praise, even an acrostic or a chorus. Now, you ready? Get this. They're written in such a way so that it's easy to remember. That's why some of us in this room don't like dirges. You know what a dirge is? Anybody know what a dirge is? It just, it's all truth. It has no melody. You don't remember it. It's kind of, uh, 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 bonk, you know, hit yourself in the head. You know, it just goes on. It has no reference at all. But this is what he said. Hymn is a poem of praise, so it's written to remember. It has a melodic sense to it. Spiritual songs, that third word there, has to do with celebration of praise. Write that down. Write the word down, celebration. Catch that word. Shame on you. If you're completely stoic and stiff in your worship. Shame on you if you're here only in time for the sermon. Shame on you if, if basically you are the one who never expresses ever any emotion in praise. Now I know, I know you're being sensitive. Praise has nothing to do with charismatics. It has nothing to do with charismatic gifts. It has nothing to do with that. The Bible says we will celebrate. Turn it loose, friends, and rejoice in your salvation and what Christ has done for you. Listen, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were what? Oh, come on, say it one more time. What? Celebrating before the Lord. How were they doing it? All kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They used everything to celebrate the Lord. Back to Ephesians 5.19. Look what it says, the last phrase there, singing and making melody 
with your heart to the Lord. Those two participles are linked in the Greek. It literally means, are you ready? This is no joke. It's singing with the voice and making melody with instruments. That's what he's doing. Singing with the voice and making melody with instruments. How many of you are encouraged by the singing of the saints? Anybody in this room? I mean, there are times, you, you, I know, you come to Sunday, I know I come to Sunday, I'm battling all week long, I get with the saints, we start singing, and my heart is made right. It's an amazingly powerful tool that God has given us to encourage each other. And the Spirit-filled Christians will sing, and Spirit-filled churches will sing. They will. Now, I know some of you are going, man, I cannot carry a tune. We've got a couple of elders that can't sing worth beans. I mean, no matter, you can sing a note for them and they're never going to hit it. Ever. Ever. But they sing. They sing. And when you're with them, you laugh a lot, but you sing. You Understand, even if it's not in key, make that joyful noise. Make that joyful noise. Uh, It reminds me of the worship leader who was visiting in the South and he decided he'd sing Old Kentucky Home with some spiritual lyrics to it as a closing number. One lady started to cry in the congregation, seemingly moved by the song, and so he got into it and she cried more and he really poured it on and she cried more and it was an incredible moment. Finally, he stopped because she was just weeping so loudly and he asked her, Miss, are are you from Kentucky? And she goes, No, I'm a musician. Uh, Okay, so... That was for you music people. Regardless, God's people love to sing. They love to sing. We love music. And and the Bible even says in Zechariah 3.17, are you ready? Write it down. God sings. God sings. And our singing is to be from the fullness of the Spirit, from our hearts, always to the Lord. Verse 19, it says, with your heart to the Lord. And because it's God's people who sing praise, our singing at FBC is directed at Him. Uh, It is not performance. We may have someone who sings a chorus or even focuses on instrumental for a moment, but we are not here to focus on musicians. We are here to focus on Jesus Christ. That's right. So we work hard to have our worship. One of our major themes is undistracted. Undistracted. Always according to the Word of God. Accurate doctrine and focused on Christ alone in praise. Are you a part of that? Is that part of your practice? A part of who you are. Number four in your outline. The church practices evangelism in all forms, especially relational. All forms, especially relational. You know, God is sovereign in salvation. Uh, That's pretty easy to establish in, in the scripture. Our nature is so sinful, so sick. Our nature is so lost that no one will ever, ever turn to Christ. It's not in our nature to for salvation unless the Lord has chosen us and called us and yanks us out of our, our basically our, our, our fallen stupor. And yet equally true, equally true, you and I are responsible to share the gospel in order for the lost to respond. They must hear the truth of what Christ has done and who Christ is and that God provided a way of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? They have to hear the truth. It doesn't come through a feeling. It comes through the accurate presentation of the truth of what God did. And on the heels of teaching us that God alone saves in Romans 9, what does he say on the heels of that? In Romans chapter 10, what does he say? Verse 14, take a look at your outline. How will they believe in him 
who they have not heard, how will they hear without a preacher? And he's talking about not what I do, but a proclaimer. Somebody who proclaims. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of Christ. Not a song, not a moment, not an emotion, but the truth of Christ. You must share the Gospel. Now, stop feeling guilty about this. So many of you think that that means you've got to be a street preacher. So many of you think that, that you've got to be somehow, you know, Mr. Zealot out there just randomly sharing Christ. That is not what God has in mind at all. Yes, God made you an evangelist. He expects you to share the gospel, but just as you are uniquely spiritually gifted and not like anybody else, you have a unique way to share the good news. Do you know your unique way? Most Christians dismiss the practice of evangelism because they can't handle the idea of knocking on a door or megaphone preaching or apologetic arguments and winning that and so they're overwhelmed so they don't do it. Friends, that is meant for some of you, but not all of you. God made you a witness. God commands you to share the gospel, but there are many ways to be an ambassador of Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? Wait, 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 one more time. Many different ways to be an ambassador for Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. Let me give you some ideas of what you could be doing, and maybe one of them fits you really well. Just let me free you up to share Christ the way God designed just for you. You should identify which style fits you best, and then start using it like mad. Go after it. What are the different styles of evangelism? Well, there's the confrontational style. That's like Peter in Acts 2 who said, repent, be baptized. Man, that's pretty confrontational, right? Then there's the intellectual style, like Paul in Acts 17. He's presenting Christ to the Mars Hill philosopher thinkers. He's very intellectual, very apologetic. Maybe that's you. You love that. Go for that when that's you. Then there's the testimonial style, like the blind beggar in John 9 who said, I was blind, but now I what? I see. You know, and that's a lot of my testimony. I didn't see it, and then all of a sudden God opened my eyes and telling others what Christ has done for him and that Christ has changed his life. Tell what Christ has done for you. Just share with others. That's the testimonial style. And it can be simple sentences. It can be a long story, but share Christ. Number four, invitational style. That's the Samaritan woman in John 4 who begged the people of her city to come and hear Christ himself, to hear the word of God. Come hear this man who just shared with me and knew everything about me. Then there's the servantational style. I made that word up. Um, The service style, like Dorcas in Acts 9, who sacrificially made things for others. She'd give them in the name of Christ to point others to Christ by serving them. And a lot of you are gifted that way. Maybe you bake or you sew or you do things. Serve others that way to build a relationship in order to which to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then number six, the relational style. That's the man freed from the unclean spirits in Mark 5. Jesus told him, actually literally told him, go home, tell your family. Tell your friends how God had mercy on you. Build relationships with people so close, they'll start to want what you have. There's so many different ways to share Christ. Amen? There are. And the most effective method of evangelism, the most effective, are you ready? Relationship. Relational. How many of you in this room were led to Christ by a family member or a friend relationally? Can I see your hands? Put them up. Come on, put them up. 
Most people are brought to Christ through the process of just a relationship. Through a friend or a family member. Listen, friends, you don't have to be a street preacher to share the gospel. Share your testimony. Invite others to hear the word of God. Serve people with sacrificial actions. Build close relationships with them. Uh, In order for you to be able to share the truth that God sent his perfect son, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to take the eternal punishment for sin that you and I deserve, that should have had for all eternity, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is now the only way, the only truth, and the only life to be right with God. Tell them that God saves sinners and do it through your unique style. Do it the way God freed you up and do it all the time. Number five, you ready? Another process, the last process, the church practices membership. Membership. Do you know what makes a healthy church? Are you ready? If I was to go around on the patio today and say, what makes a healthy church? Are you ready for the answer? This is gripping. Are you ready? Genuinely saved Christians. That's what makes a healthy church. Just people who are genuinely born again. You say, what makes a church great? is when those genuinely saved Christians do what God has designed them to do and functions the way God has called them to function. With a new heart that God gives you in salvation, you will want to attach yourself to a local church. It's as if you were a blood relation because, in fact, you are a blood relationship through the blood of Christ. Therefore, as an organ or a member of Christ's body, you'll interconnect relationally. You'll minister your spiritual gift to one another. You'll give of your time and money sacrificially. You'll intentionally invest into others spiritually through discipleship. You'll flee sin and pursue Christ together through His Word, and you will share the gospel to the world. That's part of what we do and function as a church. But that will never happen until you attach yourself to a local church. One heart, one mind, which the New Testament assumes and every Christian is to be a part of, and it's called membership. Now, when you were saved, you were made a member of the body of Christ. That's a given. But you'll never function as a member of Christ's body until you commit yourselves to the expression of God's church, which is the local church. Every Christian is to be one heart and one mind with the doctrine and direction of a church family in submission to a plurality of elders, serving, giving, witnessing, obeying the taught word, participating in baptism, communion, etc. And we know membership is biblical because of the example of the early church. Listen, you read Acts, and when they read Acts and they say people came to know Christ, they gave a specific number, didn't they? They knew who was going to their church. They had them numbered in some manner. Now, I don't know. We're not given numbers here. But you understand, they knew how many were there. The New Testament letters were mainly written to churches. And they were written in relationship more than an individual. Even the book of Acts addresses believers in a local church congregation. So the example of the early church is that we're a part of a local body. The existence of church government necessitates membership. Uh, Elders... 
the plurality of qualified men responsible to shepherd the people. They have charge over the flock. They keep watch over your souls. They'll give an account to God. They can't do that unless they know who you are. And therefore, there's a sense of recognition that you're a part of that local body. You've made that step to say, this is my church body. I'm not just here showing up on Sunday. I'm actually engaged and involved and interrelated to that church family. Even the exercise of church discipline that we talked about necessitates that we would know you and we would know one another well enough that we would be able to help each other, hold each other up, encourage each other, as well as confront one another because we know who the members are. Even the exhortation in the New Testament about mutually one anothering and ministering to each other. Christians in churches pursue the one another's and exercise their spiritual gifts. Well, that means and necessitates that we know one another and that we have a not only taking place in the corporate body, but these expectations presuppose that believers have committed themselves to other believers who are then interactive with one another. Understand this. The expectation of the New Testament church is that you belong. You belong. That this is your family. You don't float from church to church to church, which is so common today but that you belong to a body of people and that we love one another, that we advise each other, that we pray for each other, that we hold each other up, that we encourage, we disciple one another, that we reach out together, that we pray together, we support each other through the the valleys and the dark times and we celebrate with one another over those victories and fruitful times and we're just interrelated and engaged with one another and that is part of what membership is. Membership also guarantees that what your children are being taught is the truth. It means that we expect people to be able to respond to proper doctrine and also the exegesis and proper understanding of the Scripture itself over the various issues that face us today. Membership is a part of that. Living out a commitment to the local church involves many responsibilities, and those responsibilities are filled out through membership. Much is expected, but much is at stake. And only when a believer is faithful to that kind of commitment can a church actually become all that Christ wants it to become and that he can be manifested this way. We believe in it. Are you one? Have you taken the step? So many people at our church are in the process and they've been in the process for six years. Okay, so maybe you want to take that extra step. Maybe you want to say, Lord, am I practicing the things that you want me to practice? Maybe today was really weird to you because you've never heard these things before, but understand the New Testament teaches that you can look at the verses yourself and say, is this the normal expression of the church? Is the church normally helping each other with sin and confronting or covering sin with one another? Are we members and part of the family members together? Are we those who sing praise together and we're part of that process and encouraging each other in the singing of praise? Are we baptized? Are we participating in the Lord's Supper? These are the normal practices of a church. Are you a normal Christian or are you just an average Christian which is basically totally unrelated to the New Testament? Which one are you? Let's pray and ask the Lord to work in our hearts today, shall we? Listen, two things to conclude with, and you can do this with your heads down and your eyes closed, which is not a problem, and try not to get distracted and hear me if you could. One is that you you really can't do these things at all unless you're genuinely saved. Listen, try to remember this. Nothing that you do can save you. Nothing that you do in the truest sense can sanctify you. It's all the grace of God. We're not here to perform for Jesus. 
We're here because Jesus performed for us. He did what was necessary to make us right with Him. He did the work. We're the recipients. And because of that, we're thankful. We desire to obey. We desire to follow Him and to honor Him with our very lives. But don't try to pull any of this off unless you're truly born again. That He's given you a new nature and a new heart that wants to pursue Him. Secondly, let me just ask the pointed questions. Are you baptized? Listen, no matter what's keeping you from this, just if you can, in your heart of hearts, overcome that. Ask the Lord to give you the courage and step out and just identify with Christ. Every Christian in this room is to be baptized. Do you have any sin that needs to be repented of today? Is there someone you need to forgive and cover their sin? Or is there someone you need to go and confront their sin? Are you singing praise, unhindered, undistracted, with celebration? Are you making any effort in your unique way to share the gospel? You don't have to do it, you know, with, with, with a megaphone. You, you can do it in multiple different ways. And are you faithfully, sacrificially giving your time, your finances to the church and identifying with a church? If it's not our church, then a church and being a member of that church. Heavenly Father, we honor you today. Because today is all about you. And our desire is to glorify you and to love you and to follow you and obey you. Why? Because of what you did for us. We are overwhelmingly indebted to your work on the cross, your resurrection from the dead. We thank you that we serve a living Savior and we want to honor you with our life. And Father, in every way that you would be lifted up, we give you thanks, we give you praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.